brethren, I think you all recognize that God's intervention in human affairs is probably going to be speeding up over the next very few months. With the Pope's resignation and the fiscal cliff coming up, with the sequestration, as they're calling it, going to hit the, the fan's going to hit, that's going to hit the fan on that. And they're having all things like that coming up to affect the, the finances of the United States. The European nations are seeming to be in trouble again. And all these things coming together, I think we're going to see a lot of action. Our Father in Heaven is intervening. And certainly the Pope's resignation may bring about, I'm not saying will, we don't know that, but it may bring about the final Pope. There is a Catholic prophecy from the so-called St. Malachi over in Ireland, and we don't pay too much attention to those because some of the Catholic prophets were demons, of course. We know that. But his prophecy and others would indicate this would be the final Pope. So we'll see. We don't know if this man will become the great false prophet of Revelation 13. And in verse 13, it shows how he's going to bring down fire from heaven. And we want to really grasp the fact that this man coming ahead might start some of that stuff pretty soon. We have to just watch and pray and ask God to guide things like that. But we're entering into a very interesting point in human history. There are all these naysayers out there. We know that. There are people that are atheists and they're saying God doesn't exist and writing about the God delusion and stuff. Well, they're the ones that are deluded. And as the God of creation begins to intervene and shake the nations and bring about these things that we have said, and we've said for, you know, many decades that a United States of Europe would rise up. I was preaching that myself over 60 years ago. It's happening. Mr. Armstrong has been preaching that for about 80 years. It's happening. And so we need to understand what God said. A United States of Europe or European empire is on the rise. It will happen and nothing will stop it. To bring the Eastern European nations into that, as Mr. Armstrong said, several years before it happened, the Eastern European nations would have to break free from the Russians, and they did. And the Berlin Wall would have to come down, and it did. And the two Germanys would come together, and they have. And Germany would become the leading nation of Europe, which it already is. Those things have happened. I've told you these things, but recognize it, you young people and others who may hear this later. The God we serve is not just a nicey-nice father figure way off in the sky somewhere. That God is in charge of human events. That God is real. And his son, who is God, Jesus Christ, is the living head of this church. And we are going to go ahead with greater power and get his message to the world. We tried to do that to a certain extent this past Sunday on the special presentation. And I was able, of course, to be much stronger because we were not on television. They don't let you say all those things on television. You have to stop every few minutes and advertise a booklet. It's much more structured. As you can tell, I just preached from my own scribble here in a notebook, and I could say whatever I wanted to. So we are going to go and do more of these things, and we're going to go on more television stations, and we're going to use the Internet far more powerfully. And we're going to have an impact on this world as we continue to do our part. And we've got to be sure we do that. But certainly we're living in a very exciting time, and we do need to understand that God is going to use us if we keep on And if we grow and if we overcome, he will use this little group with increasing power to warn 
our British descended and American peoples of the tribulation that's going to come. And he will help us feed the flock. He will help us prepare a people for God, a people that really are committed. As Mr. Lyon said, we have got to be committed, not just be churchgoers. We have got to be committed to really mean it. And God is watching us right now in that regard. Brethren, Passover is coming in five weeks. Five weeks from tomorrow night will be Christ's Passover. It's coming on us pretty quickly. And I think they could get the sermon ready out to the churches before that time. So I want to give a sermon about the Passover and the real meaning of the Passover because it certainly ties in with what we're going through right now. We should prepare for the Passover in every way. God Almighty tells us back in 2 Corinthians, if you'd like to turn there, this is 2 Corinthians in your New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and here's a very familiar verse, of course. He says to the brethren, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, examine yourselves as to whether, and we need to do that because some of you are sitting here in church. A lot of you, of course, some of you younger people are not baptized. That's fine. You need to be sure. But even many who are baptized may just have gotten themselves dunked in the water. They may have joined the club because they had relatives in the church or whatever reason. Examine yourselves as to whether you're really in the faith. Prove yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ, get this, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you are indeed disqualified? You're disqualified to be in eternal life. You're disqualified for being in God's kingdom unless Jesus Christ is living his life in you. And that's certainly what this is saying, as I think you know from all the sermons that we've given. Who is this Jesus Christ? What is this Passover thing all about? Well, let's go back at this point, if you would, to the first chapter of John, the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, and turn there with me, brethren. John, chapter 1, in your New Testament. And beginning in verse 1, God says, here is the real beginning of everything, as Mr. Armstrong said. This goes back even before Genesis, chapter 1. In the beginning, it doesn't say 6,000 years ago. It may have been and probably was billions of years ago maybe trillions of years ago. In the beginning was the word, the logos, L-O-G-O-S, as it is in the Greek, the revelator principle, the spokesman. And the spokesman was with God, and this spokesman, this other great being, with the Father, this spokesman was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. We have to constantly blast that into our brain because a lot of us just, even in the church, we sort of think in our mind that God the Father made everything. Well, he did, but he did do it through whom? He did it through Jesus Christ. Christ was the one, Jesus, who became the Son of God, who died for your sins and my sins. He was the one who said, let there be light. He was the one who made male. He was the one who made us female. He was the one who took a bone out of Adam's body, a rib, and made that into a female to be his helper. He's the one who made us and made the family. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. He didn't say a man shall leave and join another man. He said a man shall be joined to his wife, and they would have 
children and so on. That's what marriage is all about. Modern man and even our tricky politicians who have a double talk way of explaining things. They're trying to redefine marriage. They're trying to redefine God. They're trying to redefine everyone, everything. And they're very tricky the way they do it, but the way they structure their ideas. Please don't let them fool you. The word was with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. His life showed us how to live. We better just read on that, read on that, feed on that, drink into that. And picture this young man, 30 to 33 years old during his ministry, walking up and down the edge of the Sea of Galilee and up and down the hills of Galilee and going through the lush valleys, going through the villages and what he did all day long. Preaching, teaching, helping serving, giving of himself all day long, laying down his life for other human beings because he who had been God was now human, fully human, and tempted in all points like as we are. He got so tired because he was fully human in the flesh. He'd been preaching or teaching all day long. They got on this boat at the end of the day. We're going across the sea and a great storm came up and the boat was just thrashing up and down and his disciples woke him. They said, don't, don't you care, care, master? We're perishing. We're going to drown. Well, he didn't worry about it because he'd been the one that created that big lake they called the Sea of Galilee. He's the one that created everything around there. He got up and rebuked the, the, the wind and the sea and it quieted right down. They were astonished. They said, here Jesus is. He said he looked looking normal one minute and the next minute <laughs> he's a different guy. He says, peace, be still. And the wind stops and the storm stops and their heart began to pound and the hair began to raise up on the back of their legs and say, what's going on here? He was God and he was God in the flesh. And so he was a light in the world. And there was a man from God whose name was John. He came to bear witness of that light. And then that light did come. He was in the world, verse 10, and the world was made through him. Christ made everything and the world did not know him. He came to his own, the Jewish people. His own did not receive him. Are they going to receive us, the world? No. They killed Christ. They will kill some of us. They will not like us, Jesus said. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Some of you may be hurt, as I am, that some of our own brethren leave or they get in trouble or they're overcome by the devil. Well, Christ had that all the time around him. Many of his brethren went back and walked no more with him, as it says there in John chapter 6. One of his 12 disciples fell away and betrayed him. Judas came up and kissed him. And he said, friend, what do you want? And they grabbed him and took him away. One of the very men that had been with him all the time turned on him. Christ knew that would happen, of course. But we've got to beware of the world and come out of the world. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. We have that right, even to those who believe in his name. Christ's name means everything. His whole character, his personality, everything he taught, everything he stood for. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the will of the flesh, but of God. And the word became flesh. Christ, who had been that great being who spoke, let there be light. He was the word, the logos, the spokesman. He became flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said. Christ was born six months after John the Baptist, when you look it up, and his brother John, his cousin John, became the, the great witness, of course, and he said, He who came after me is before me, for he was before me. Christ was born later. Christ began his ministry six months after John began his ministry. But he was before. And John knew that. He was the God of creation changed into the human flesh. Because he emptied himself become like we are. To set us the perfect example. And to shed his blood to pay for our sins. And to let his body be broken in that terrible scourging that by his stripes we were healed. He is God. So we want to really picture that great being. That's where it all started, way back there in outer space somewhere, with his great being creating everything and making human beings in his image and later emptying himself, as it says in Philippians chapter 2, to come into the human flesh, to set us the example, and to die for us, to empty himself of his power so he could be our Savior and our high priest and our living head later on. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians, brethren, chapter 10, notice here in verse 1, Paul writes under inspiration, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers were all under the cloud. Ancient Israel went through that cloudy sea as they passed across the Red Sea, and they were enveloped in a cloud over over them and waters all around them. And all passed through the sea and were all baptized, completely buried in the, in the, in the sea and in the cloud and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, drink, drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock. At that point, they were sustained by Christ. They drank of that spiritual rock and that rock was Christ. The God of Israel was Jesus Christ. The creator of Adam and Eve was Jesus Christ. He was the rock of Israel. He's the one who taught Israel. He's the one who spoke the commandments. He's the one who made the Sabbath holy. He's the one who spoke the Ten Commandments from the top of Mount Sinai. It was his voice that reverberated across that plain. And people were scared because they heard the voice of God. That voice was the Logos, the spokesman. It was the voice of Jesus Christ. So we want to really picture the one who is our Passover. And again, these people that wonder if there is a God, they wonder if the Bible's inspired. Boy, if they put all this together, they could see no human being could possibly have put all this together. No human being could possibly have written things hundreds and hundreds of years ahead, sometimes thousands of years ahead, and brought them about just exactly the way it's shown in this book and in history later. God spoke all these words, saying, This was Christ, the Logos, speaking all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You're not to make any idols. You're not to make any pictures of Christ, anything that you think looks like God or is a representation of God. Nothing like that. He is the invisible God. He is not able to be fit into a picture frame. 
He's the one who's the, create, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's the one who sits at the throne of the universe, guiding everything that is with total power. When you see thunder moving across the plains in East Texas, it just shakes the whole land. Often knocks down our outbuildings there at Big Sandy's. We've had it happen again and again. Rolling thunder. That's the voice of God. And even that is not God's total power. But we want to understand that. I am the eternal, your God. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't put any man ahead of me. Don't put any woman ahead of me. Don't put your family ahead of me. Jesus said in, you know, Luke 14, if you love your father, your mother, your family, your own life also, you cannot be my disciple. You can't be there. You won't be in God's kingdom if you put something, anything ahead of God. He is God. And we have to really have that total commitment in that way. He says then in verse 4, you shall not make yourself any carved image. That's all part. No, that's the second one. You're not to have any other gods. And then you're not to have any idols. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I'm a jealous God. And then the third commandment, verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Don't talk carelessly about God. Don't say, well, God did this and God did that like God is in your hip pocket. You want to honor God if he really does help you do something, but don't take his name carelessly. Don't take the name of God in vain or take it carelessly or or in a silly, disrespectful manner or certainly curse in God's name. Then he says in verse 8, remember the Sabbath day, the fourth commandment. That's the one commandment God says, remember And that's the one they always forget. (laughs) If God said, forget this, they'd remember it. If God commanded mankind to keep Christmas, what would they do? They wouldn't keep Christmas. He said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You can't keep cold water hot. Keep it holy. God made it holy. Man can't make Sunday holy, the day of the sun. But God Almighty made the seventh day holy. Keep it holy. Worship on that day. Because it pictures God as creator. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them. And rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord hallowed, made holy the seventh day. And you're to keep it holy. Verse 12. Honor your father and mother. And tells you how to do that throughout the whole Bible. Show them deep respect and honor. He says in verse 13. You shall not murder And Christ, remember, magnified these commandments all the way through the New Testament directly and through his servants. You're not even to hate someone in your heart. You're not to have the attitude of murder. You shall not commit adultery. And Christ said you're not to even have the attitude of adultery. You're not to look on a pretty woman and mentally undress her or lust for her in your mind. That is adultery in God's mind. You're not to have that. And then he says... And, of course, you're not, you're not to, to lust or to uh, 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 covet your neighbor's house or his wife or a manservant, maidservant, or anything that is your neighbor's. And he said, I'm skipping over here, commandment 9, trying to hurry along. You shall not steal, commandment 8, don't take anything that is your neighbor's. Commandment 9, you shall not bear false witness. You're not to lie. You're not to twist things. God hates liars. Those that make and believe a lie, God says the revelation shall not be in God's kingdom. Brethren, how do you examine yourself before the Passover? This is one way. 
think on these ten points, as they're called in the Hebrew, these ten words that God spoke. Do you have any other God before the true God? Do you make any idol in any way? Does anything else become an idol in your mind? Do you take the name of God carelessly? Well, I just love the Lord. Well, what Lord are you talking about? How do you take God's name in vain? Think about it. The fourth commandment. How did you keep the Sabbath last night? Did you watch some wild thing or worldly thing on TV? Did you read some worldly novel? Did you read something else that's not good? What did you do? How do you worship God on the Sabbath and keep the Sabbath day holy? Keep that fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Do you honor your father, really honor your father and your mother in your heart and mind? Do you not ever hate? A lot of people have animosity and they don't want to forgive each other. They have the spirit of hate right in God's church. That's the spirit of murder. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You don't want to have the attitude, I'm going to get sex no matter what. Is sex the most important thing in life? No. God Almighty came in the human flesh through Jesus Christ, and Jesus had no sex. He was married, we know, to ancient Israel, but you don't have to have sex. John the Baptist was never married in his life. And apparently the Apostle Paul, we're not sure about him, he may have been, but others of God's great servants have not been. No, you don't have to have sex. Sex is just one part of life, and a wonderful part if it leads to the right kind of romance and marriage and a family. That's good. But it is not anywhere near the most important thing in life. Dr. Lynn Torrance, not many of you knew him, but some of you remember him. He was a registrar at the college in Big Sandy and became a minister during those many years he was with us. And he used to pastor the church up in Mena, Arkansas, up in the hills. He'd drive up there, and they loved him. They loved old Dr. Torrance. He was a, he was a character, but a very dedicated fellow, unusual. He was one of the survivors of the Bataan Death March during the Second World War. And he had been in the hold of a Japanese prison ship, and then in a Japanese prison camp and was finally released from that. And he helped us understand, as he gave lectures to the students or his forum or assembly once a year, what is really important and described it in vivid detail, which I can't, but I've heard him tell it five or six times, so I remembered it basically. He says, when you get down into a hold of a prison ship and the sun is beating down outside in the South Pacific and it heats up and heats up, and there are hundreds of men jammed in a place that are, they ought to be only have a couple dozen men. And they're virtually lying on one another. They're urinating. They're defecating. They're vomiting. They're starving. What's the most important thing in your mind? Some pretty girl somewhere. That's the last thing in your mind. The first thing in your mind is air. How can I get some decent air as you begin to suffocate down there and as men begin to die? Air is first. Then comes water. Water. I just want to drink my throat. i got to have water. There isn't any clean water. The next thing is food. And your body's crying out for food. And sometimes the men, as they die, they didn't usually eat each other while they were still living. But they would sometimes help them along a little bit. As he said, he saw it. Men would eat other human beings. 
If a number of you have read history, you know that. That's happened in virtually every major war in history. They turned to cannibalism. Men eat men. You say, well, that was back during the Dark Ages. No. That was when I was a little boy attending junior high school dances and parties and basketball games. And Len Torrance was seeing, seeing some of his fellows eat each other. Eat each other. It got so awful. You begin to crave air. You begin to crave water. You begin to crave food. And then you begin to somehow wish you could move around and not just be cramped in there like that. You have all kinds of needs that are more important than sex. I hope you young people can figure it out. If you got to have this or that right now, no, you don't. The only thing you need is to know God and Jesus Christ, his son, and have Christ living in you and giving you power and strength, the right mind, and then deliverance, which he will deliver you if he's working with you. And you don't need all this other stuff. you got to get rid of self, self. I want this and I want that like a little baby. Little baby cries out for food and yowls and causes trouble. Well, he doesn't know any better. He's just a little kid. We smile because he doesn't have any self-control. He just goes in his pants right in a public place and his father and mother have to change diapers and clean it up. He doesn't have any, any modesty. He's not bad. He doesn't know anything. But when we get older, we're supposed to know something and we're supposed to control our animal desires and lusts and our bodily functions and all that kind of thing. We're supposed to know how to do that. And we're supposed as a Christian to do that, really do that in our mind and heart with the help of God's Spirit. But we have people in God's church who say, I just want this right now and I want that and I'm going to leave the church if I can't have sex or I can't have this or can't have that. Really? You're going to leave eternal life because you can't think you can't have something like that for a few years or until something else gets better or whatever it is. Don't be ridiculous. Don't play games with God. If you're going to take the Passover in a few weeks, don't play games with God. Unless you commit to the God of the Bible and to the Christ of the Bible, you shouldn't be there at the Passover. Examine yourself. Is Christ in you? Is Christ living in you? Otherwise, you are disqualified. You're not really in God's church. You may be sitting here, but you're not in God's church, whether you're in Kansas City or Chicago or L.A. or wherever you are out there hearing this sermon, unless Christ is in you. Examine yourself before the Passover. Let's really do it this year. God wants us to be clean. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the eternal, God tells us. And we are clean overall. I know that. But there are many among us who have been slipping and getting weak. And we must be clean. And God will bless this work more powerfully than ever before if we go all out to be clean and right in God's sight. So I hope we can get the picture and really do that with all of our hearts. Now back here in Exodus chapter 12, here is a pre-enactment of the Passover that took place when? In a sense, it's like a prophecy. It was done about 1,500 years before Christ. It was done about 3,500 years ago, and about 3 million people did it, or at least the adults did it, and the children were there. It says here in Exodus chapter 12, and you read it here beginning in verse 1, 
The ever-living one spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, This month shall be the beginning of months and you're to take a perfect unblemished lamb and keep that lamb up until the 14th day and at the beginning of that day a lamb without blemish, an unblemished lamb of the first year. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month and the whole assembly, verse 6, shall kill it at twilight or at sunset. We know by all the other scriptures at the beginning of the 14th day. And they shall take some of the blood. They're to shed the blood because the priest would slit the lamb's throat and the blood would gush out and the lamb would die very quickly. The lamb would just sense sort of a funny feeling, a little slit right there. Suddenly the blood drains out of its brain and it goes to sleep very quickly without pain. Just an odd feeling, no doubt. But that's it. You shall keep it up. And then they shall kill it at twilight and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the side posts of the houses where they eat it. And they'll eat the flesh in that night, roasted with fire. And it says, you're to let none of it remain in the morning. So they ate it that very night. And what remains in the morning, they were to be there the next morning. They did flee that night. That indicates that. Some have said, oh, they fled that night. No, they did not flee that night. They were not to go out of their house that night. They didn't flee till the next night. You shall let none of it remain until the morning, and what remains until the morning you shall burn with fire. Thus shall eat it. You're to eat it in haste. You're to eat it looking forward to fleeing, but you're not to leave the house that night. It is the Lord's Passover, verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods. They had all the god of this and the god of that, pagan gods in the land of Egypt. And God struck down symbols of every one of them. Against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. I am the ever-living one. So he made that very clear. The blood shall be a sign for you, verse 13, on the houses where you eat. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where the word Passover comes from. God passes over our sins, brethren, if we're really under the blood of Christ. But to be under the blood of Christ, we should have really, fully, wholeheartedly repented of our sins. All the sins we were aware of, at least. And the whole attitude of what? The whole attitude of sin, the whole attitude of self, 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 and have given our lives to God and really meant it with all our heart. I'm giving my life to you, God, and burying the old self under the water, as it describes in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. We go down into a watery grave when we're baptized, and we're to come up to walk in newness of life. And so this is the commitment we should have done, and we should continue to carry that out, that our life is not our life. My life is not my life. My life is God's life. He owns me. I should give every day to God. I should give every hour to God. I should give every minute to God as best I can. Do I get every minute and every second to God? No. My mind wanders onto worldly things every now and then because I'm human. But as we grow in grace and knowledge, that total commitment should continue to grow and grow and grow in impact and depth in our heart, our mind, and our life. So we were to completely bury ourselves and accept Christ's shed blood to pay for our past sins. And God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. We will not be under the death penalty anymore. And they 
the plague which shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, verse 14, and your sheep will keep it a feast of the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast, a spiritual feast, by an everlasting ordinance forever to God's people. We are the descendants of those people. We are the descendants of Israel. And all of us here, whether we're black or white or whatever background, we're all spiritual Israelites and Abraham's children. If we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, we know that. So how many people? Around three million people kept the Passover and they pre-enacted the slaying of an unblemished male lamb who had his blood shed to protect the people from trouble, to protect the people from the rages of sin that was to go on Egypt. And that was done when? 3,500 years ago, 1,500 years ago, before Christ came along and did it. That's quite a prophecy in a sense when you think about it. 1,500 years ahead of time, a whole nation acting it out. The perfect, unblemished male lamb, Jesus Christ, came along and did it as the Lamb of God. So we want to understand how big these things are and how the great Creator intervened to guide these things in ancient Israel and in the life of Jesus Christ and our lives and to bring these things about. Now turn, if you would, brethren, to Isaiah chapter 52. This is the next scripture I want to give is Isaiah chapter 52. Turn there with me, if you would. In Isaiah 52, and beginning in verse 13, God says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man. This man coming along was going to be beaten horribly so that his visage, his whole face was marred, bloodied, beat up, swollen. His eyes probably swollen shut. He fell over carrying the cross that another man had. Was he weak? No, he was a strong young man. But he had blood had spurting out of his back. He was beaten almost unto death as they often did. And maybe one of his eardrums was ruptured because they said they hit him with their fists. They hit him with clubs. They probably ruptured one of his eardrums. And he lost his sense of balance. He was beaten up more than any man. Horrible beating. And his form more than the sons of man. They beat his whole body with that lash. So he shall sprinkle many people with his blood, so to speak. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Boy, when Christ comes back, the kings and leaders of this world and the great white throne judgment, judgment comes. The jaws of ancient Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, they're going to, they are, they're going to be deadly scared for the first time in their life, perhaps. They've been a big shot in the past. All of a sudden, the blinding light is going to wake them up and they're going to realize they're standing before God. They will be standing before the very people of God they persecuted. And they'll learn lessons. Many of them may be better Christians than we are, though. We had to realize it. They don't mess around, some of the leaders of the past. Some of us mess around. We play church. We do things that are convenient. We don't completely bury ourselves and give our lives to God and make a crusade out of it. That's what we've got to do, brethren. And I hope you will for your good. I mean, I'd be here in three or four, six years. But most of you will. 
And I want you to do that for your eternal good that you may be in the kingdom, the family of the great God. Please don't play church. These things are very real. He then goes on in chapter 53, who has believed our report, and it shows how this man would come up as a tender plant on dry ground as he was born. Of course, the spiritual ground was very dry in Israel. They were cut off from God. They were heavy into sin. He has no form nor comeliness. You don't see any example when Christ was here about people saying, oh boy, how big and strong he is, or how good looking he is. He wasn't weak either, but he was a normal looking man, probably pretty well built from all the hard work he's done, but he didn't have any big Hollywood look about him at all. No form or comeliness, no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This is chapter 53, Isaiah. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our, and it is in the margin, printed in here by the printers. They know that the Hebrew word is sicknesses. He, through this horrible scourging, has borne our sicknesses. We know God says in the New Testament, by his stripes we were healed. And it comes from this back here. He's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. But he wasn't. The world thought he was allowed to do that because of God. Well, God wasn't punishing him. He was willingly taking our sins on him. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And notice, by his stripes we are healed and it says in the New Testament version in, in 1 Peter 2.24, it's interesting how God inspired Peter to slightly reword this. By his stripes we were healed because by the time Peter wrote, Christ had already been beaten and that plentifully had already been applied to hundreds of people who had already been healed by the time Peter was written. Like all we like sheep have gone away, gone our own way, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's borne our sins. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, like a sheep being to, to the shearers. He was silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so God allowed the transgression of my people to be upon him. God says back here in verse 8, And they made his grave with the wicked, verse 9, with the rich. He was buried in a private rich man's cave, so to speak, at his burial place because he'd done no violence. He didn't deserve to be thrown out or and dishonored in his death. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Verse 10, he's put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. Here was the ultimate offering for sin prophesied in the book of Isaiah written about 700 years. Get it, look it up. 700 years before Christ. You say, well, how can you prove that? Some of the scholars may say, well, Isaiah wrote this later. Well, none of the scholars say that Christ wrote it, that Isaiah wrote this anywhere near Christ. Some of them think he wrote some of the prophecies 200 years later, or some other guy, Deutero Isaiah, but not this part. They try to twist other things around where he named Cyrus by name or other things because they don't want to believe he did that. He did do that. That's another subject. But this was written 700 years before Christ. And he describes Christ's death in detail, in detail. He was cut off from the land of the living. And, of course, he was made uh, his grave with the rich. 
Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Verse 10. He's put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering. Here it is. He was the offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Of course he would be resurrected and given eternal life. He shall see the travail of his soul. Be satisfied his knowledge by my righteous servant. Shall he justify many. And he'll bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. He is going to be king of kings and lord of lords. He'll be over all the earth. He'll divide it with others, but he will be in charge. Because he poured out his soul to death. Written about this man 700 years ahead of time. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was counted a sinner. And he bore the sins of many. Yes, he bore our sins. He was the Passover lamb. And he made intercession for transgressors. Just as he died, remember that? He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. They don't understand. They don't get it. He made intercession for them then. And he continues to make intercession for us. It tells us in Romans chapter 8 and much of the book of Hebrews. He is right now our high priest in heaven making intercession for the saints. So this was all predicted 700 years before the New Testament was ever written. 700 years before Christ came along. All these things were written describing a man who would be beaten like that, a man who would be killed like that, a man who would do these things in advance. Now let's turn back and see how it all began to happen. Turn to Matthew chapter 27. Now, Christ has come, of course, and has had his ministry by this time. And near the end of the book of Matthew, in Matthew 27, they had been accusing Christ, trying to get some excuse to kill him. And their witnesses disagreed with one another, but they kept on lying. And then Pilate said to them, Matthew 27, verse 22, What then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, they yelled at him, crucify him, crucify him. Then the governor said, why? Pilate was smart. Mark's account says he knew that for envy, they were jealous of him. For envy, they delivered him up. They knew that. These religious leaders were envious. They were jealous of him. If we do a big work and God grants some of us the gifts of the Spirit to heal the sick, discern spirits, cast out demons. These ministers around here in the world who don't know Christ, are they going to rejoice that the power of God has come here? No. They're going to be so mad they can't stand it. They'll be envious. That's the way they were with Christ. What evil has he done? Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail, but rather a tumult was rising, as the Roman governor, he was supposed to appease the people and not let too many riots come along. And he'd seen what had happened to governors who did not keep peace. Why, then he washed his hands, tried to get out of it that way, and says, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see it through it. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. I don't think we could begin to imagine the horrible suffering that's come because of that. His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, the criminal, and said to them, when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So he delivered Jesus when? After he had scourged him. 
they had the Roman soldier who was a trained man with a lash, cut lash of nine tails, and he was called a lictor. That's where we get our American word licking. We give the boy a licking. A lictor, he had this whip, and he knew how to wield that whip to cut into the human body, and try Christ tied was tied over to a metal post or iron something, and he was beaten and beaten till his flesh was torn off of him by this expert whipper, this lictor, and it was horrible. God came in the flesh, and just like my friends and I as stupid little boys used to torment ants or or little bugs sometimes, we'd get pins, our mother's pins, and torment the bug. <laughs> they treated Christ as a little bug, and it was awful. They didn't understand, though. He said they don't know what they're doing, so he wasn't mad at them personally. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. But that's what they did to him, as it had been predicted, 700 years ahead of time. They scourged Jesus with whips by his stripes. If you picture the whip, well, Jesus groaning and jerking by those stripes, we were healed. God in the flesh was whipped and whipped till the blood was streaming down and he was in horrible pain to help pay the penalty of our foolishness of eating all kinds of refined foods and sugars and perhaps drinking too much, smoking too much, and many of us in the past do things that were not right, tearing down our bodies and not taking care of them. And he allowed that penalty to be paid by Jesus Christ if we will have faith in God and in the stripes of Jesus Christ. And we picture that by the bread. We take the bread at the beginning of the Passover that pictures Christ's body, then the blood comes next. That pictures the shed blood of Christ for our spiritual sins. So then he crucified him. And in verse 35, then they crucified him, divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And this, of course, was predicted back in Psalm 22, verse 18. Often, brethren, in the New Testament, you're saying, as it was spoken by the prophet, or this or that, over and over again, the New Testament shows the Old Testament was what? It was Scripture. It was inspired by God. It's validated over and over. Virtually every book in the Old Testament is validated as God's Word, as Scripture in the New Testament. And that's what it says right here. So then they wrote his accusation, verse 37. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. They would write the accusation of a criminal. They say he's been a criminal, a, a thief or a murderer. No, he was just called the king of the Jews. So then, finally, as he was hanging on the cross, verse 45. Now, about the sixth hour until the ninth hour, the sixth hour, brethren, they called, started counting in the morning at 6 a.m. So this was high noon. High noon, when it should have been the brightest. And about high noon until 3 o'clock in the afternoon, those hours normally would have been the high, the hardest and the lightest. There was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, he knew that God was not giving him any special help. He sensed that. He hadn't had that before. God let him go through that to pay for our sins. He had the character his own, but he didn't have a lot of extra help from God as he'd had before. 
No respite from the pain. No special surge of spiritual strength. He felt as we would feel. And he he did what had been prophesied, yes. But he must have very sincerely felt that. Why have you forsaken me? Well, because of your sins and my sins, brethren. That's why Christ had to do that. That's why he had to suffer that. And so then... Some of them said, let's see if Elijah will come and save him, verse 49. And then, as you see, if you get some commentaries, right at the end of verse 49, as the Clark's commentary explains, and another took a spear. It's in in many of the old Greek manuscripts. Another took a spear and pierced his side, and there came out water and blood. Right here. That ought to be in there. That's one of the very few places where we do not feel the new King James and the old King James are correct. But they have this printed in there in some verses, of course, because they know it was in most of the texts. It was not in the the, uh, Codex Vaticanus or Sinaiticus, but many of the Old Testament texts had it. Hundreds of them apparently had this in there. And they've taken that out because they don't fully understand it. So another took a spear. He didn't die of a broken heart. He died because the blood gushed out when the spear was jammed in. And John, uh, wherever it is, verse 34, uh, something like that took place. But this is not that that was in after he had died. This was before he died. And so then, in verse 50, he cried out. Why did he cry out? Well, if he had a spear rammed in his side, of course he would cry out. It didn't say he cried, but he yelled, Look! A spear was rammed in his side and blood gushed out. And then he yielded up his spirit. His breath went out. The breath of the Son of God to pay for our sins. His breath went out. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to the bottom. That heavy veil, like a very thick rug, could not normally be token, torn, but even Josephus and other historians record that somehow it was ripped in two right then, separating the Holy of Holies from the outer court. That was opened up when Christ died, showing now we can approach directly the throne of God in a way man was never allowed to do before. That was ripped apart from top to bottom. And then, as the Creator died, because Christ was the Creator in the flesh, and as the Creator died, the creation itself convulsed. It shook, and a massive earthquake shook just when Christ died. For miles around there, things were shaking, and people were wondering, what's going on? And some of them still don't understand. And when they're resurrected, they'll be taught. The Creator was there and that young man hanging on that cross. The Creator died and the creation shook and God caused it to be shaken in honor of the death of His Son, so to speak. And as a sign, the earth quaked and the rocks were rent and then graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves, not right then, but after His resurrection, it was over a holy day weekend, And so God allowed Christ to be coming up first, although they weren't resurrected to eternal life, but somehow they weren't even coming out until after uh, this weekend, after his resurrection, and they went into the holy city and appeared to many as an additional witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
That's one reason, brethren, and you young people or new people, you read about this even in Protestant literature, they have this one thing straight. What they have is a mixture of good and evil. But all through that part of the world at that time, there were increasing thousands, thousands of people, finally tens of thousands of people believing in this young man that had been killed. Was he the only man killed like that? No. Dozens and hundreds of men had been killed like that, crucified by the Romans. Why did they suddenly believe in him? There had been dozens of them see him. And it says in 1 Corinthians 15, over 500 saw him at once after his resurrection. They went out telling their friends, their neighbors, their cousins, their relatives, he is risen. He is risen. The Son of God has risen from the grave. And they were astonished at it. And the whole world began to be changed as these people went out and gave their lives in witness to that. They were sincere. They got beaten up. They got thrown in jail. They gave their lives. They knew what had happened. They had seen hundreds of them, over 500 once. And if they had 10 relatives, that's 5,000 and so on. And they knew. And it began to spread around that part of the world as a massive witness of God's intervention in human affairs by sending His Son to be the ultimate Passover Lamb, to be our Savior, and later then to rise from the dead. So we want to realize the meaning of all this. Sin is awful. You turn aside and start lusting after someone else's wife, and some of you women start looking around and say, well, my husband's not perfect. I'm going to go out and look for some excitement somewhere else. God help you. God help you. He's going to have to help you in the years ahead. Don't do that. You are committing adultery in your minds. You're playing with fire. God himself had to come in this earth and die a horrible death to pay for our sins. Sin brings suffering. Sin brings broken homes. Sin brings little children without their fathers and mothers. Sin brings death, physical death often, because it leads to even physical death and wrong ways of life and so on. Sin leads to all kinds of suffering. It leads to war. It leads to crime. It leads to murder. It leads to all kinds of violence. Sin is bad. It's not fun. It's awful. The result on the whole society that's groaning, waiting for the intervention of God because of sin. And Christ is going to have to come back and clean it up. A huge cleansing process. Let's be part of that process in our lives right now. As we approach God's Passover, let's mean it. Don't play games with God. Repent. Repent of sin. And turn back to God with every heart, every bit of your heart and mind and being. Don't be afraid to do that. If you want to give yourself fully to something, Hitler's youth used to scream and yell, Sig Heil! Sig Heil! And they go out and die. A lot of these kids scream and yell when the Beatles came along. And now some young rock and roll guy comes along and they scream and yell like they're worshiping him. Don't worship some stupidity. Worship the Creator. And worship His Son, Jesus Christ, who is real and who is coming back soon. He will be the ultimate star. He will be the ultimate one to worship. Jesus of Nazareth. He's alive and He's coming back soon. You talk about a rock star, he won't need to be a rock star. I don't want to compare him in that way. But when you see the glory and the majesty, when he comes back again, and when you see the whole world being cleaned up and people crying for joy, 
because now the families are going to get back together. They're going to be released from prison camps and concentration camps and torture and suffering and disease and death and people crying for joy. You're going to say, wow, what Christ is doing, what Christ is doing, not what some politician is doing, not someone rock star is doing, not what some Hitler's doing, not what some Mao Zedong or some Chinese dictator is doing, what God is doing. The very Son of God, our hero, our Savior, our King. Well, let's get a little bit of that feeling. It's not wrong. That's the kind of worship we ought to have. That's the kind of adoration we ought to have. That's the kind of excitement that we ought to have. I hope we can learn to have that in God's church more than we do. So, brethren, this is the meaning of Passover. Will we acknowledge and repent of our sins and turn back to God with all of our being? Will we in this church right here and you brethren around the world examine yourselves, compare yourselves, go down the list as I did through the Ten Commandments? Is there any other God that you have before the true God? Is there any other God that I have before the true God? Is there any idol that we make where we put ahead of God? Is there any way we cheapen God's name? Is there any way we break God's holy Sabbath and don't honor him on the Sabbath? Is there... Anyway, we dishonor our father and our mother. Is there any way that we hate? We're mad. We carry grudges, which is the spirit of murder. Any of that in our hearts and minds, that spirit of competition and envy and resentment. I don't like this person. I hate this person. This person has hate me. They're not fair. They're blah, blah, blah. We hate him. We don't like him. That builds up into what? That builds up into the spirit of murder. That is not right. Examine yourselves. If you have the spirit of murder, even in a lesser way, it could lead to that. If you're in the world and where they have all these guns, you know, those one thing leads to the other. It's the spirit of murder. You look at some other woman. Do you look at some other man beside your husband or young people? Are you physically and mentally getting involved in sex in your mind even before you're married? That is sin. If you have a prospective uh, wife, a beautiful young woman you're engaged to, it's certainly all right to think about her being sweet and beautiful and lovely and hope you can take her, you in her arms and kiss her and everything like that. That's not wrong. But don't go beyond that. Don't directly think about sex and the act of sex. Put it out of your mind saying that's for marriage. That's when we're made one flesh by God. When I'm counseling young people for marriage and I see they're very close and they're holding hands or they're already cuddling or in that attitude sort of. I've told them this for 60 years or whatever. I've had to learn that. I said, look, John and Jane, you're not married till you're married. <laughs> okay. Don't act like you're married ahead of time. You're not married till you're married. Wait until you're married. And they usually figure out what I mean. Sometimes I'm pretty plain. I say more than that, of course. So anyway... <laughs> You know, I'm not bashful. I'll embarrass some of you here. But you better get the, get the point. Be clean. Be clean that bear the vessels of God. We are God's special church. We're the ones and we here at the headquarters church. We're to be the light of the world. We're to here be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Let's be that light. Let's be that salt. And you brethren around the world in the living church of God. We're not the dead church of God. We're the living church of God. Let's be lively sacrifices in the hands of our Father in heaven. So I hope all of you will examine yourselves in that way. 
and go down the line and all these things. Back in Galatians chapter 5, if you would, Galatians now, and I want you to turn here to chapter 5 of the book of Galatians. Notice what Paul writes. Let's begin in verse 16. Galatians 5, 16, Paul writes, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's part of our problem. Some people lust for more liquor. They lust for marijuana or drugs. Some lust for sex outside of marriage. They just want somehow to stimulate themselves, their body, their minds below their belt, as we say. They make a big deal of that. They can't get their mind up where it ought to be. Get over it. Grow up. Think about what Christ did. He got along fine for 33 and a half years. And Paul did for decades at least, whether he'd been married way back when and was a widower, we don't know. He certainly wasn't married for decades during his ministry. Had to keep going and going and going and serving God's people without a wife. And he did just fine with God's help. You can too. All of us can. And if God opens up the right one in the right way, that's fine. Let it be the right one in the right way at the right time. So he says, don't walk in the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. There's that battle going on in people's hearts and minds, in their flesh. But if you're led by the spirit, if God's Holy Spirit is leading you, you are not under the law. You're not to be under the penalty of the law. You're not to be breaking God's law. Now, the works of the flesh, what are the works, the, pro, the product of the flesh in your life, the way the flesh acts on you? The works of the flesh are evident. Adultery, that's the first thing. That's one of the biggest things people get into, as God describes it. I think in the book of Isaiah, he said, men are neighing after one another's wives, like horses neighing. Looking around, look at this woman, that woman, this worldly thing. There are whole sex clubs around Indianapolis and Chicago and these m major cities around our nation. They've had whole TV specials on them on 60 Minutes and other programs. They're there. And I don't want to describe it, but men and women sign up. They can swap wives and they have, I don't want to go through it, but it's very, hundreds of people involved, thousands, I mean, tens of thousands. They swap wives. They're into this. Our nation is filthy. Fornication, illicit sex before marriage, and fornication, pornea, also includes, look it up, it includes perversion. So it includes this homosexual type thing, anything that's before outside a normal marriage. If you're normally married and have sex, you're committing adultery. But if you get into perversion or sex before marriage, it's fornication, pornea. And it would include homosexual perversion, licentiousness, all kinds of wild living, means lawless, idolatry, people are into idols all through Europe, they have these little idols, and we make an idol out of our big car, our television sets, our money, everything like that, sorcery, all kinds of people looking into the horoscopes and the signs of the times in the world way, hatred, hating people, resenting people, bitter against other human beings, even in God's church. Contentions, arguments, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions. It gets right back to that again every time, brethren. Self, self, self. What does the self want? Well, I feel I want this. 
I've got to have sex whether it's in marriage or out of marriage. And I'm going to go get this or do that or something, whatever it is. I'm going to get my drink. I'm going to get my extra shot of uh, dope. And I let my lusts run my life. If you're a Christian, you do not do that. You do not do that. Unless Christ is in you, you are disqualified. Think about it. Don't play church. It's not going to help you. Don't play church. Don't let it happen to you. Selfish ambitions, dissensions, people arguing over the truth of God and not letting God guide his church. Heresies, false doctrine being brought in. Envy, resentment, you see, against others. Murders, drunkenness, people drinking too much. Revelries, wild parties, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in the past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not be there. Do you want to be there? Don't do those things. Examine yourself before the Passover. Go down the line and say, I've done some of these things. I've carried some of these attitudes in my heart and mind. And go home and get down on your knees, both knees, and say, Father, forgive me, help me, clean me up and scrub me out. I really want to be in your kingdom and I need help. I need help. If you pray that way, God will help you. He will help you, brethren. I've had Satan pound and pound on my mind in the past and tried to put things in there. And I've had to cry out and so one day fasted two days in a row. Just cried out to God, help me. And he did. And it never came back to the same extent, although things like that come back every few weeks or something, something pounding, and you have to fight it. Don't let it get control. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't do it. That's the lust of the flesh. Now what does God's Holy Spirit bring in your life? Think about this in regard to the Passover. Next verse, verse 22. The fruit, the result of the Holy Spirit in your life is what? Love. Love. What is love? Grabbing a woman, whoever she is, and trying to make love to her? No. Love. This is love. First John 5, 3. This is love that we keep His commandments. That shows us how to love God, and it shows us how to love our neighbors. We love a woman in the right way if we really want the best for her to enrich her life. And if she could be the best help to you and you the best help to her, that's fine. Marry her, but marry her. Be at one with her. Make a covenant before God on your knees to be bound for life in sickness and health, richness or rich or poor, whatever it is. And bind yourself before God as one flesh before your creator. He will then bless that. He will then bless that and you will be blessed in that. But don't do it some other way. Love. Love, as Mr. Armstrong said, is outflowing concern. Genuine outflowing concern for one another. You want the best for the other person. You love him as yourself. That doesn't mean you don't love yourself. You've got to have enough self-esteem to know that God has made you as a special person. But then you love others and want the best for them too. And then you love, you have outflowing concern. You have worship and adoration to God in heaven you adore him, you worship him when you see the cry of a little child, when you see the thunder shake the mountains, and you know that is the voice of God. When you see a beautiful sunset, when you hear a beautiful symphony music, every good and every beautiful thing is of God. And when you see the quiet of the evening 
and the breeze is slowly going through the leaves and birds are chirping, that beautiful sunset, all those memories you have of good things and beautiful things come from God. God made that. God made us to have a good and a wonderful life. He is love. And we need to appreciate the gorgeous beauty that God has given us in so many facets of our lives. God is love. Love Him. Worship Him. Adore Him. Give yourself to Him. Joy. A deep sense of happiness inside knowing that you are doing the will of your Creator. You have a peace that passes all understanding. Then peace. Long-suffering. Some people say, I've had enough. I've had this problem for two years. Well, I've had some problems for many years. Many years. How long was Joseph being tested by God? For 17 years. No, 13 years from age 17 until he was 30 years old. He was in and out of prison, put down, thrown in jail, wrongly accused. For 13 years he had to wait on God. But he did not give up. He did not give up. And then God finally made him the executive vice president, so to speak, over the whole empire of Egypt, which was the greatest empire on earth at that particular time. Wow! But he had to be humble for a while. He had to be patient and wait on God. Long-suffering. With God's help, you can do that. Kindness. Be kind to one another. Goodness. You want good and not evil. Faithfulness. Put your faith and trust in God. He's there. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He loves you. He's made you in His image. So these are very important things. Gentleness. Self-control. That's the last but not the least. Self-control. You've got to control your lusts. You've got to control your vanity. How do you do that? Well, you know what I'm going to say. Always. (laughs) Galatians 2.20. Galatians chapter 2, you turn back to it. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me, Paul wrote. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If Christ lives in you, you can have these qualities. You can produce these fruits. You can overcome the self and the world and the devil. You can be in God's kingdom and God will help you every step of the way because that's what he wants. But you've got to be excited about it. You've got to go all out for it. Don't do it halfway. Don't play church. Against there as such, there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh. Have you crucified your flesh with its passions? A lot of people have passions. They're not always good passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. You say, I'm going to be spiritual. You better do it God's way. Walk that way. Let us not be conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So get rid of all those selfish, vain attitudes that people have. So we've really got to understand that, brethren, and to be sure that we go all out to be in God's kingdom. And I certainly hope that you will. Turn back to Luke chapter 22 now, if you would. Luke chapter 22. He said to the disciples, verse 28, You are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom. Brethren, Many of you older brethren have been with us in the living church of God for 10 or 25 years, whatever, in this work, at least 10 to 20 years, and God's church for more than that, going back to worldwide. Many of you have been around. Don't give up. Never quit. 
You've been, worked so hard. Don't turn aside. You have been faithful these years. You've been with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, Jesus said, just as my Father bestowed upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones. That's our judge. God, glory and power in the very family of God forever. This is what he promised the immediate disciples, the apostles, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he said in verse 31, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to have you. Even there near the end, Satan was especially after Peter, their human leader under Christ. Simon, Satan is trying to get at you. Peter denied Christ three times right there at the end. But finally, he went out and wept bitterly when the cock crowed. And he finally realized what he'd done. He did repent. And then a few months later, Acts 15, or Acts 5, I mean, and verse 15, even Peter's shadow passing over people healed them. It was amazing. He turned around completely with God's help and God's spirit. Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Jesus said, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned or when you have been converted, as the King James has it, strengthen your brethren. Strengthen your brethren. He had not returned to God fully. He had not been converted or changed fully. And Christ knew that. But strengthen. He knew Peter had inner strength. But he was easily turned over. And Satan was after him in a special way. And Jesus as the Son of God sensed that. He's after some of you. Some of you key people in the work right now. I'm not trying to be dramatic about it. I really mean it. He's going to try to get at us at some of the key departments of this work. He is alive. He is well. Satan goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He knows we're getting ready and on the verge of doing a much bigger work. He knows that things are going to speed up. He sees we have a fantastic opportunity to have an impact on this world greater than perhaps any modern ear of God's church for hundreds of years. We've got to be clean. We've got to be dedicated. We've got to be wholehearted and right with God. And then God will be right with us in power and help us do this work. Do not let Satan do that. He's trying to sift. Just as he tried to sift Peter, he's trying to sift some of you. And he's trying to sift some of you, brethren, in the churches out there. He's tried to sift me again and again through the years. Put me through things where I was wondering what's going on. But if I would fast and pray, I would see what was going on. I tried to look beyond the trial and see that God was there. And you've got to do the same thing. Don't let Satan sift you as wheat and get control of you. And then verse 39, coming out from where they were meeting here, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed to, and his disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, this is Luke chapter 22, verse 40. When he came to the place, he said, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Brethren, boy, we must not give up on profound heartfelt Bible study and prayer, fervent prayer to God, walking with God, talking with God, asking God to help us all through the day. I don't mean two or three times. I mean 20 or 30 times a day, just in your mind saying, Father, help me, guide me, give me a right spirit, rebuke this wrong spirit, walk with God, walk with God. So he came to the place and said, pray that you enter not into temptation. 
and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed, poured his being out. He knew he was going to have to do that, go through that horrible beating and suffering and death in a few hours. And so then he cried out to God and said, Father, if it is your will, remove this cup from me. They used to have a cup of hemlock where people would be have to take the, the poison to kill them. Remove this cup of death from me, this suffering I'm going to go through. Remove this from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We've got to get rid of self. We've got to get rid of the lust of the flesh. We've got to get rid of this attitude. This is the way I feel. This is what I want. Please do that, brethren. Whether I'm here in a year or two or five, it doesn't make any difference. You do that for the good of your eternal life. You need to be in God's kingdom. Don't play games with God. The work is being done here. The truth is being preached here. You know that if you're honest with yourself. Don't bury. Don't let Satan sift you. Don't let Satan get you selfish, vain, lustful, bitter. Don't let it happen. Pray for your brethren. If you see some of them getting that way, help them. But pray for them. Pray for them. Ask God to rebuke Satan. And ask God to help you and me and all of us really wholeheartedly examine ourselves as this Passover approaches. Let's do that, brethren. Again, let's not come before God. But as the Passover approaches, we must build within ourselves this total, heartfelt, deep, profound commitment to Jesus Christ who gave his life for us as our Savior, our living head, our high priest, and our coming king. He is our God. He is our head. And God tells us to honor him as we honor God himself. You read it back in the book of John. God wants us to do that. And God wants to honor himself too. Honor God. Worship God. Give your life to God. And know that it's not God, your life. It is God's life. Approach the Passover humbly. Have a foot-washing attitude. Have a worshipful attitude. Have an attitude that's been deeply repentant. And come to God as one who's been praying and maybe crying and fasting and asking God for forgiveness and to clean up his church, clean up his work, clean you up. Don't look at the other guy. Look at yourself. Let's give our lives to God and really accept the sacrifice that Jesus Christ gave so we can be one with God, one with Christ for all eternity in the kingdom and the family of God.